Right. Ooh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that woke me up. I don't know about you. Right. We come. We had a an introduction last week from Chris to this subject of the Trinity, which was good. We want to go on and look at it a bit further uh, this morning. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in love and purpose. And as we come to look at the Trinity, we realize that we're trying to in some ways, explain the unexplainable, aren't we? Because we're trying to, we're trying to uh, explore and, and see into something that in one sense uh, is, is, not, is not logical. One person, three persons, three in one. And yet we're clear that this is a, a, a doctrine that is found throughout Scripture and which, of course, the church has, has held on to for, for many uh, centuries. Now, I, there's many things that I can't explain. I, I, I'm hopeless with science. I just about got the absolute bottom of grade in general science when I was uh, doing my um, GCSEs. So there's lots of things that I can't explain. Um, but one of the things that helps me to, to understand things is our pictures. I can, I'm, I'm far more, that's the way I think and try and understand. And so this morning we're going to look uh, at a picture, in a sense, that the scriptures give us as Phil's just read, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where we see all three of them together, as it were, on the same, on the same occasion. Now, people have tried to describe the, the Trinity in, in many, many ways. And um, there's a, an ancient picture there. So there you see the Father with his long white beard, of course, um, and the Son, a uh, much shorter beard, and the, the dove, the Holy Spirit, coming, uh, coming in to the picture. There's a more recent attempt to look at the Trinity. I don't know if some of you have tried to read this book, The Shack. Uh, I read a little of it, but not too much, but where obviously it gives, gives a picture. This is for the film, of course, of the book, where uh, it gives pictures of what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, might look like to try and uh, stimulate our thinking. Not everyone uh, finds that too uh, helpful. Here's a more traditional image uh, of the shamrock. I think it was supposed to be uh, St. Francis who, uh, who brought this picture of the, the three-in-one, the three leaves of the clover or the shamrock, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a perhaps one that you might see more commonly of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each of them, in a sense, being God and together being God. And then there was that lovely diagram that Chris brought us uh, last week, which I haven't uh, included, um, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But all of these pictures, in a sense, are trying to explain the unexplainable. And uh, it was St. Augustine, I don't know if that's really what St. Augustine looks like, that's a a portrait of him, who said that, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your... My, this is attributed to him. Whether we really said this, we don't, I don't know. If you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to explain it, you lose your mind. And I think if he did say, whoever did say that was saying, actually, there is something really important in terms of understanding the Trinity when it talks about losing your soul, there's something really important about understanding it, even if we cannot 
explain it in simple, clear, logical terms. Why is it important? Well, because this is what the Bible reveals, is the true nature of God. And this is the nature of the God that we are called to believe in. So it's really important that we understand what sort of God Scripture brings to us and what sort of God we believe in. But it's, it's more than that, isn't it? Because we know that we're created in the image of God. And therefore, something of the nature of God is, is implanted in us, is found in us. Now, we know that image has been corrupted. We know that image has been spoiled. The mirror's been cracked, whatever else. But one day, we will be restored fully to the image of God. That's his purpose. And so when we think about the Trinity and the nature of the Trinity, and we're thinking about how that nature is meant to be reflected in humankind, in human beings like us, it's important we have some understanding. And the scripture gives us, I think, that understanding. And here we have in in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, this picture of of all of them being together. And uh, so Phil's just read it to us. The setting, of course, is the baptism that of John, and uh, just a few weeks ago, David was speaking about John baptizing, John the Baptist, in the, river, uh, in the River Jordan. And people were coming to him to, be, to confess their sins. This John had come as to prepare people, to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. And he preached a baptism of repentance. You guys, this would be true of us as well, you guys have not lived up to the laws that God gave. You've not been the people that God intended you to be. And you need to recognize that. And if you recognize that, then be baptized. Be public, publicly go into the water and show that you repent, so that you're sorry for your sins, and also show that you're going to change your ways that you're going to get ready for this coming Messiah and turn from sin and turn in faith to God. Now, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, Kim and I actually were at the River Jordan. Um, Just as it was getting dark, we were late getting there. And our guide was talking to us about the River Jordan and John the Baptist or whatever else. And then somebody in our group said, oh, there's people being baptized just down down the river there. And so we quickly ran across and there was this group of people in the water and there's more on the side waiting to be baptized. And uh, so we stood and watched while these Brazilians, of course, not initially, of course, but they were Brazilians, being baptized in the, in the River Jordan. Uh, now, whether that's where John was baptizing, I don't know, but... Um, but it was, a, it was great to see them um, going in. And, of course, with typical South American enthusiasm when they, came out, when they came out of the water. So John was baptizing in the River Jordan. And then we have what we read this morning. And Jesus was, was baptized. Jesus was baptized too, it says. Well, so how does that fit? So here's John baptizing people who want to show that they've not lived God's way and are prepared to repent and confess their sins and change their ways. John is baptizing those sort of people and then Jesus is baptized. 
And John rightly says, doesn't he, in the other, in the other Gospels, hold on a sec, hold on Jesus, you should be baptizing me. I'm the one who also has not kept God's law. I'm the one who also needs to confess. Not you, should be the other way around, shouldn't it, Jesus? And we could perhaps think about why it is that Jesus chose to be baptized. But one thing is clear. He was baptized because he believed that that's what he should do. Not because he was a sinning, not because he was a, a failing, someone who'd failed to keep God's law. He's the only one who kept God's law. Not because he needed to in that sense, but because he believed it was right to do. To fulfill all righteousness, as he said in one of the other Gospels. So Jesus was baptized too. And there we read, and as he was praying, so he's been baptized, he's come up out of the water, and it says, as he was praying. What was he praying? Well, we don't know, do we? Because it doesn't go on and say there. But I think what happens afterwards is an indication of what he was praying. I think, I think he was praying things like, Father, I want to do your will. Father, I want you to be glorified. Father, I want to submit to your purposes. Father, I'm ready to do your will. No, I don't know. None of us know how the Father's will was revealed to Jesus. But I would like to think that, that, that all of God's purposes for him and his earthly life and death and resurrection were known to him at this point. As he begins his public ministry, he knows all of what lies ahead. And he says, Father, I'm ready to do your will. And that's why I'm being baptized. And something happens. Something out of this world happens. Heaven is opened. Heaven is opened. And something is seen and something is heard from the heavenly. And what is seen is the Holy Spirit come down in the shape, in the bodily form of a dove. Or a pigeon, by the way. I like to think of nice white doves, but it could easily just be the local rock pigeon. But this bird descends upon him, lands on him, comes on him. And we hear this voice. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Now, we have other instances, don't we, in the Gospels of when God speaks to others. But on this occasion, God speaks directly to Jesus. The other two occasions that we could look at, we haven't got time. In a sense, what God speaks is for those others who are with Jesus. This is a word to Jesus himself. You are my son, whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. And here we have a picture. It's like a family portrait. 
I like that one because they're all wearing the same shirts, all the guys are anyway. A family likeness. Here in this little couple of verses that we read, we see a little pen picture of the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus, a man, a 30-year-old man. I don't know if there are any 30-year-old men, someone or two, but maybe not too, too uh, different to that age with us this morning. We see a 30-year-old man who's come from this tiny village. No, wishful thinking, Chris. If you, I saw you smiling there. Maybe, yeah. Um, we see this man who's come from Nazareth, this tiny little village in the north of Israel, just a few houses. And he's come all the way down, to the, probably to the south of Israel, somewhere in the, the, the Jordan near the Dead Sea. And here he is being baptized. A person that we can see, and a person that's like us in every sense, except for one, of course. And this person is God, submitting to the Father. And then we see the Father speaking. We see the Father's, we see the Father's response to his son. And Chris last week tried to open up for us, didn't he? How, how this loving relationship that has existed from all time and before time in the Godhead itself. This love that exists. Perfect, pure love. Wonderful, pure relationship. And here we see just a, just a glimpse of it as the Father speaks. And the Spirit comes down comes on him, fills him, anoints him, enables him to do his will and to do the Father's will. One in love and purpose. Loving one another as they always have. Working together as they always have, whether it be in creation or whatever else. Now they're working together on something that was planned and determined before creation. This is before creation. They had planned and purposed to do this. To do this together for the sake of this world that they would bring into creation. I just want to look at this briefly in a little more detail under two headings. The word of the Father and the work of the Spirit. The word of the Father. As I said, we have two other occasions in the Gospel where, where the Father speaks a voice from heaven. A voice that is heard. But this is the occasion when he speaks to his son directly. And he says, you are my son. You're my son. Now Jesus would have known the messianic prophecies. So he'd have known in Psalm 2 where we read that this is my son whom I have chosen. Uh, this is my, sorry, that's not, that's not what you read in Psalm 2 verse 7. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Jesus would have known that. And now he hears it. He hears it directly from the Father himself. Confirming, in a sense, affirming him that he is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the one that has been sent from God. Maybe his mother had told him what the the word the angels had said. That he'll be great. You'll be great. And you'll be called the son of the most high. And now he hears it. He hears it directly. That confirmation that it's true. 
He is the one. He is the son. You are my son whom I loved. And as he said, that the, the one that he'd shared that deep love for from before the creation of the world. John 17, 24, we read, because you loved me before the creation of the world. And he loves him now. He loves him now as he's come in human form, as he's come as a, a human being like us. You're my son whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. I'm delighted. I'm thrilled. I'm so proud. Those are just earthly words that I've used to try and describe something that is indescribable. But that's the picture I think we're meant to see. That the Father loves this Son. Loves him. So pleased that he's willing to submit himself to doing the Father's will. Delighted in him. Simple words. Very simple words. And words in a sense that though we cannot get the full understanding and meaning of, things that we can relate to. We can relate to a father being proud of his son. That son who's done something, who's given up something to do something that was right. Sometimes we see it, don't we, where, you know, whether it be at graduation, where a son's got, a son or a child has got severe disabilities and yet they've pushed themselves all the way through the education system and now they're graduating and the parents can say, we're so proud of you. So proud. Or a son who served in the military and come back or lost his life even. That was our son. We sometimes hear it, don't we? We're that was our son. We loved him. We're so proud of him. Earthly picture of something that God is speaking in a sense to us from the heavens. What about the word of the Father to us? So why did the Father send the Son? Why did the Son choose to come? Why did the Holy Spirit descend? That we, we, you and I, and everyone else in a sense, would have the opportunity to be brought into relationship with him. That loving relationship that they have is what God, in a sense, wants to share with each one of us. And all are welcome. All are welcome. Even the unlovely are welcome. That's why when... The, 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 you know, the religious leaders could not get it, could they? When, so when they said to them, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And then Jesus goes on and tells three stories, doesn't he? The last one of which is we call the prodigal son. And what does the father say when the prodigal returns? This is my son. This is my son. He was dead. Now he's alive. And I welcome him back. And you see, the unlovely, like the people that Jesus is with and like the boy in the story, the unlovely are welcomed into the loving relationship of the Father and Son. And that is us. Do, do we know that? Do you know that? Do you know that? deep within yourself, that you've been welcomed into the loving relationship of the Father and Son.
and that he speaks those words over us, however undeserving we are, that this is my son, this is my daughter. You're loved. You're loved. And this love in us, not just in a sense for just for ourselves, although it, it is in that sense, but it's beyond that, isn't it? We could read lots from John chapter 17, which is the prayer that Jesus prays just before he, he goes uh, to the crucifixion, to, to is arrested, etc. Just read one verse, but we could read the whole, whole prayer. He says, I've made you known to them. This is Jesus speaking. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's what God wants. That's why the Father sent the Son. That's why the Son came and did his Father's will, that we might be loved and that being loved, we might be changed and brought into a relationship with the Father but all, and the Son, but also that we might love the unlovely. Know any unlovely people? The truth is we're all unlovely at times. At times I'm unlovely to Kim, deservedly so, and occasionally, very occasionally, I find her unlovely too. Only very, very occasionally. <laughs> Nowhere near as much as I'm unlovely, right? Let's get that straight. The unlovely are loved by the Father. And we are also to love the unlovely because he loves us. And because his love can bring a change, that change and transformation in our lives. If we don't love others, if we don't love others, have we really come to know the love of the Father? If we don't know, if, we don't, if we're unable to forgive others, have we really received and understood the forgiveness that's given to us through this, what we're going to celebrate in a moment. Very quickly then, the word of the Father and the word of the Father to us. The work of the Spirit. Now we could say a lot about this from Luke chapter 3 that goes on into chapter 4, but we haven't got time. But the strange thing is, isn't it, after Jesus was baptized, if I was writing the script, I'd expect it to say then that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, went out in power and preached to thousands and healed many and his fame spread far and wide. And some of that does happen, but it doesn't happen now, does it? At the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit in the desert where he was tempted for 40 days. That was the beginning of his ministry, to be tempted. And what does the devil say to him? What does the devil say? He says... If you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, then you're my Son. You're my Son, whom I loved and with whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus, unlike the Adam that we read about in the trilogy, in the, in the genealogy, that's the end of chapter 3, all these things connect. Adam, who was this, you know, uh, the son of Adam, the son of God with a small s. Adam, who failed. 
who chose what was best he thought for himself. Jesus does not fail. He doesn't choose what's easy or what's best for him. He chooses what's, what he knows the Father wants, enabled by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't take the suggestion that the devil says, if you're the Son of God. And then in chapter 4, and we're going to read, we're not going to read all through chapter 4, but in chapter, chapter 4, verse 14, after the temptation that Jesus has overcome, wouldn't be, the, wouldn't, be the, wouldn't be the last time, I'm sure, Jesus was tempted, I'm sure, many, many times throughout his life. We can read about one or two others. But we read in verse 14 that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And then he goes, so he goes back to Nazareth, goes back to this little village where he spent most of his life, and he goes into the synagogue, and as he was used to doing, and everyone there, everyone there would have known him. It's only a small village. Everyone would have known him. This is the guy, this guy used to work in the craftsman's shop or whatever else. And he gets out, or he's given to him, the passage in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which, is, which we read here in Luke chapter 4. And he stands up and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then later he says, today, today, this scripture, written over 700 years ago, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today it happens, what Isaiah wrote all those years ago. The Spirit's anointing. Why a dove? Why not an eagle? Why not an eagle? The Romans thought the eagle was a suitable image to use, didn't they? A bird of power. But no, it's a dove that comes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Gentle, humble, simple, pure. This is the anointing he receives. This is the anointing he receives. And it's this spirit that comes upon him in his baptism, this spirit that leads him out into the desert, this spirit that then takes him, in a sense, back to Galilee and back to Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. And what has he anointed me to do? To deliver you from the Romans? To set up my kingdom here on earth so that all men will worship me? That was the temptation of the devil. No. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The work of the Spirit in us. It is the same Holy Spirit that came and anointed Jesus that wants to fill us. The same Spirit. Now it won't be the same as it was for Jesus because Jesus was perfect, sinless. We are sinful. But that same Holy Spirit with that same purpose, that same message is the one who comes, wants to come into our lives and fill us, lead us, 
empower us. Not for great world conquest, but with gentleness, humility. And the question for us is, are we willing to respond as the Lord Jesus responded? Are we willing to say, yes, I submit myself to you. I want you to come. I want you to fill my life. I'm willing. I'm available. I'm ready. The word of the Father. This is my son, whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. And with the word of the word of love of the Father to us. I want you to share. I want you to share. This is what it's all about. That one day you will share in the love that we have within the Trinity. Perfect and pure. And until then, the work of the Spirit in us. That we might do the things that God wants us to do in the way that he wants us to do them. And so the, rep- the captives will be set free. This is covering a wide thing, you know, who the captives are. The poor may hear the good news. The blind may see. And God may be glorified. And we end up with a family portrait. It's not just a few. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's a big family, isn't it, eh? The family of God is a wonderful, amazing family. One day we'll see it's made up of people of all different types and backgrounds who've been brought into this loving relationship of the Father and the Son through the work of the cross.